You're listening to The Reality Show, hosted by Dan Rutstein, president of immersive tech company, Laduna. Each episode delves deep into the power and potential of immersive technology in business, entertainment, or sport, now and in the future. Welcome back to The Reality Show. This is, a, this is going to be an interesting episode because we are sitting down with a company that I rather admire um, and have admired both in my old life and in my current life. So I'm delighted to have Alec Paulson, the founder and CEO? Yes, founder and CEO for my faults. Of? Of Indy. Of Indy? Yeah. Although you've been called other things, haven't you, at various times? We, yeah, we, we began circa 2010, so we were AppShaker when we first started, because we began as a mobile application company failed miserably at that within 12 months uh accidentally came across ar as a technology uh on a on a youtube video that had 4000 views from a developer in japan and i think we spent about 3 weeks afterwards just staring at this video just trying to work out how it worked and we <clears throat> effectively from that point we pivoted the whole company and then became indian about 2013 very good so I, I, I'm gonna, obviously going to come back to that because that sounds too interesting to leave just there. Oh yeah, so lots of good stories. Wasn't we it? first met, um, I'm trying to work out exactly when it was, I'm going to say four years ago, uh, when I used to host what we used to call the Great British Showcase at the British Consulate in Los Angeles, where we would have events where we would have British products. So we'd have British food and drink, obviously a lot of whiskey there. Um, we'd have British fashion and so on and we'd always try and showcase a British tech company now Laduma who I obviously now president of had actually done some VR stuff at that event but there's one event we did where um, I'm going to think was it there was an alien called Sean is that right yes Sean so tell us about what you did with Sean the alien so Sean Sean is actually based on a human Uh, when we first we developed a system called Live Avatar which is effectively using uh, motion capture suits and technology but in live environments so what we wanted to do was to allow people to interact with animated characters in real time and we built a system which which kind of worked at the time it was an internal kind of project and we were invited to comic-con and we set it up at comic-con and we couldn't find an actor co- to control the character and we found a jobbing actor on it was the equivalent of craigslist or whatever it was a gum tree or something in london <laughs> And this guy, this guy turned up called Sean. And he said, we've got this alien, we want you to voice this alien. And uh, brilliant. So whatever, you know, he took his kind of 75 quid, 100 quid for the day's work and was just epic. Just became, he, he created an entire character effectively in two hours and then proceeded to be this character for three days. And that was, that was how Sean the alien became Sean. It was just purely, yeah, we still see him now. We still kind of knocking back. Amazing. We see him so the, I remember the way it worked is there was a corner of the garden. People stood on a mark. They looked at a big screen. Yeah. Um, and magically appearing next to them was Sean the Sean. alien. Yeah. And, and in the back room of the house is a man in a full motion capture suit. Yes. Um, so feeding, yeah. So it's a mocap suit feeding through broadcast AR, which is our AR platform on big screens and then effectively live rendering out. And then because it's live rendering, we could then play around also with not just the movement of the character, but then you can make this character appear, disappear. You can have particle animation just to, you know, you can kind of disappear in a puff of smoke and then reappear in the opposite part of the, the stage effectively. Yeah. Um, but again, it was, it was one of those 
one of those kind of brilliant moments. Actually, it was another actor who was doing that, a guy called Joe, that we also work with. And the engagement levels were just huge. Mm. Because people just, people just leave all their baggage at the door. They, just, they suddenly go, okay, what's that? And then they start talking. And actually, instead of questioning how this is working, all they did was just say, this is brilliant. I'm talking to an alien in the consulate garden in West LA somewhere, drinking fantastic whiskey. I do remember thinking it was quite funny that you had, there were kind of various kind of products. So there's, I've always found, we've always found ourselves uh, next to Marks and Spencer at these UKTI events, <laughs> which I always thought so that was a kind of, well, I know Marks and Spencer, but what is this? Um, so yeah, that was a tremendous amount of fun. I've seen, I think we were just talking about the clips and, and uh, somebody was, he was talking about how he has, a, he had amazing core strength. So they're talking about yoga at one point. And someone just actually just broke into a conversation with yoga, about yoga with him. Fantastic. And he kind of thought, yeah, just, just very, very innocent and really pure kind of engagement. And it's interesting, because obviously, yeah, that was an event, <laughs> and you know, we just wanted to showcase some, some British tech at the time. But I suppose looking back, and particularly now I'm working in this world, it really goes back to the core of why immersive tech is so powerful. It is it, it's that ability to give somebody a completely different experience and <clears throat> immerse themselves in the world where you can have a what seems like a perfectly normal conversation with an alien about yoga, um, which, yeah. you know, that's sort of the point of the technology. Yeah, it's the point. I mean, for us, it's always been about creating the engagement which allow, you know, for marketers and for brands that are trying to sell, they're kind of realising at this point that you can't, just, it's, you can't just beam things into people anymore. You can't just say, you know, it's not just a price conversation anymore. It's about experience. It's about brand. It's about feeling. And so to start to use this tech to allow people to to spend a little bit more time with something and be engaged with it and entertained with it is, is actually quite huge. I mean, you know, certainly with Avatar, it's in its infancy, really. Uh, it's, you know, <clears throat> being, being around immersive characters and immersive environments is still relatively new. Mm. Um, you don't see it that often. You certainly don't see it in conferences. You don't see it in retail spaces that much. You don't, although if you follow <laughs> your company on social media, you do. So, you know, you've been yeah, we're, having we're vocal. penguins and dinosaurs interacting with children in shopping centres and railway stations and museums. Mm. You know, you're, I suppose you're, you've, you've taken it to new levels in terms of scale of the screens and so on. Yeah, and also, and also I think, you know, we, it's, it's not, the, the people buying these things and the people using these things are, are, are completely uninterested in technology. They're, they're, what they're interested in is engagement and they're interested in furthering a conversation with the people that they're meeting and talking to and so for you know for us it was you know we've worked in we've worked in lots of different spaces but education it fitted really really well entertainment it fits really really well marketing it fits really really well because there's there's a there's a kind of instant moment there and then people leave the, as we said kind of leave the baggage and just kind of use it for whatever it's intended to do so in education spaces actually it's less about kind of the moment and maybe it's more about spending time educating uh, a young person about climate change, for example. Mm. For a brand, they have to really resist the temptation to say, this is super engaging, but can you also mention the product is, is eight ninety nine? Yeah, And that's where you have to really be careful with them and you have to work with them to say, this is, this is not the sales point. This is, the, this is marketing, this is engagement, this is the time you're gonna, you're gonna spend time with the customer and then maybe they're gonna come back afterwards. Yep. And that's a difficult sell when people are spending large amounts of money on seemingly odd, weird deployments of things that they're, they're not used to. 
So what's the philosophy? When you <clears throat> sit down as a company, what's your, what's your vision statement, your mission statement? We've had, uh, we've had, we have lots of discussion about that. Um, we, <clears throat> we began, we began as a company that used AR to create products and experiences. And that was from day one, that's what we did. And as we've kind of grown up, we've, we've become more mature as, as kind of business leaders. We've become more mature as kind of employees too. Uh, we've begun to realize that there is, there's a kind of, we're creating strong emotional bonds every single time we talk to someone. Uh, we've got, we, we've kind of, we've set out kind of 11 commandments in the company about what, what it is that we expect from people and what they, you know, what, what we want. And one of them, one of them, I think it's kind of point six or whatever it was, is build community everywhere. And actually, it's, it's, it sounds quite old-fashioned, but it's something that we've kind of always been really, really good at. From you know, from exhibiting UKTI, you know, from, from back in I don't know what it was, like 2010, 2011, we've developed this amazing network of people that we rely on in every corner of the planet. I mean, we're the only company that's that's installed systems in Guatemala twice. And then, and then yeah, your reach is extraordinary. You've been, you've done stuff on every continent. I think I read the other day. We, we're usually doing stuff on, we're usually st- doing stuff in two, three continents every thirty to sixty days. Wow. Um, and that's actually been, it's actually been an, another thing that the company itself, I have really enjoyed, is, is being able to see the world and meet meet new people. You know, change the tech that we have and, ch- and change the things that we do to adapt to local markets and understand things. You know. What works really well in LA, you're going to have to adapt heavily to be able to work effectively in somewhere like Beijing. So, from a business point of view, um, I I have <coughs> not been I have I don't have an MBA. I haven't been to business school, but I remember advice we used to give British companies when they're exporting was don't spread yourself too thin at the beginning. Yes. So, export's very important, but you have to be careful <laughs> not to spread yourself too thin. Yeah. So, how is a company which is relatively small? Yeah, and obviously nimble, but relatively small. Yeah. How are you managing to have such global reach in terms of delivery without sacrificing something? Um, well, a couple of things really. One, one productizing, and that's something that we really instituted circa 2014. So we had an agency mentality. We had the the, the, the classic thing of kind of do something and then forget about it and move on. And, and the world kind of told us, no, you can't do it like that. You, there is value in what you just created, and you need to focus on that value too. So. To be able to deliver in every any country in the world, the productization of it has made it so much easier. So we know that people arrive to us and they say, "Okay, I would like, I would like this, and I would like that plugged into it." To a certain extent, the kind of PlayStation model, mm. and that's allowed us to have a much greater reach with, with still, you know, with less than twenty people. Mm. Um, I think. I think. Secondly, there, there's a tremendous eagerness within the whole team to create something that's much bigger than themselves. It's always been a kind of core belief of mine. I, I didn't go to business school. I, I went to a fairly middle-of-the-road comprehensive and kind of just about scraped through art, art school. Um, so, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of people that we work with have a point to prove. And they believe, and they genuinely believe that they can punch well above their weight in terms of what they do. Yeah. And that's resulted in when someone calls up and says, we want to install you know, a system in, in a country 8,000 miles away, you, the team, they're already thinking, when do we need to go? Yeah. And that, that to me, is one of the great kind of, you know, the pluses. So the sort of plug-and-play model means that you can <coughs> send somebody across the world, and how many people do you need to set up even some of these extraordinary 
Well, effectively, we can. Well, effectively, we could. We can. We can remote load content and systems from anywhere in the world. So everything we have deployed now, we probably have, probably have about 150 systems installed around the world. Effectively, they're all remote access, so we can update them. We can, you know, we can install new content packs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but in terms of the rest of it, we've we pretty much refined a lot of the work that we do down to standardized boxes, standardized software installs. Uh, standardized content packs, standardized content production in terms of what we make and, and where we make it. Um, the custom custom work is, is to a certain extent a touch more complicated, uh, so it requires a bigger team. But ultimately, we wanted to be the first company that, that productized the usage of AR and yeah. not on mobile. Yeah. Um, to us, it was like the, there's more to it. The, there's more to AR than just it as a tech. It's a principle. And the pre you can apply that principle to everything from, I'm just checking if you've got an Apple Watch. If there's an Apple Watch there, then that's augmenting your daily life now at mm. that point. So the glass is going to be the next stage on for it. So for us, it was like, if we always if we always retain the idea that it's a principle, then why should we beholden, be beholden to one particular tech? Yeah. Um, rightly or wrongly. And so in terms of products, just for those who don't know yeah. about the company, in terms of your broad... <clears throat> products you're sort of small medium and large what what, what have you got <clears throat> so we have um so broadcast AR, which was the kind of key the key system that we put together in about 2011 um and that effectively creates a kind of ar layer on screen on any screen large or small we have uh the hero mirror which is effectively we set out with the goal of creating an ar like a hero vending machine that was the principle like mm. to turn your heroes sports or, or entertainment or whatever it is turn them in to a certain extent into a commodity that people would be willing to meet and buy and actually it's it's valid uh avatars kind of live character control um and then and then you get into uh to mobile ar which is really for us it's kind of custom development mm. so if people approach us we will develop standalone applications we will also use uh for example social so we'll use the kind of the snapchat kind of tools and build out for them um, and ultimately, probably heading towards kind of where they are with that. But we've, yeah. ne we've never identified, uh, we've never identified exactly because it's in flux. We've never identified really exactly where we can win, and until we feel we can win or at least be at the top of the charts, it's, it, to us, it's like okay, this is going to be a developer race. It's mm -hmm. now going to be people building mobile through social, for example, for very very low fees. So we're not even convinced at this point that. That that's going to be a longer lasting play yeah. uh, and then we have View which is a kind of retail arm so about 2014-2015 we started toying around, playing around with computer vision and the idea of using cameras to make decisions about things so we have two products in View now which is one is Viewpoint which is giving kind of live engagement metrics for stores so we can measure age, gender, emotional state and dwell time and we can do it from a box which is about the size of a palm of the hand and runs on approximately $80 hardware. Um, that one we're kind of quite proud of because we built that in-house, all of it. Yep. Like the internals, the externals and the software. And then view display. And view display is using that technology to create reactive digital media. So if you're in the store, if you're in the front window, if you're in any space, then we can now switch the media out in real time depending on who's looking at it. Yeah. Uh, so view's definitely more into the invasive sort of privacy conversations whereas India has always kind of sat in a kind of 
relatively yeah, yeah. comfortable sort of space. Re- yeah, so this is, <laughs> I remember talking to, on the invasive privacy point, talking to a company, and uh, they described their business model as you're walking past a McDonald's and a notification for a discount for Burger King appears on your phone. Yes. Um, it's that yeah, side yeah, yeah, of yeah. the world. Yeah. It's that side of the world. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. It's ultimately going to happen. It's ultimately going to be deployed. It's going to need to be deployed because if you think about it, brands spend millions and millions of dollars targeting their advertising online, yet in store, it's like 1955. So this will be, uh, you know, a 20-year-old man looks at the screen <clears throat> and sees a product designed yeah. for 20-year-old men, and then a kid comes up and they yeah. see the kid's trainer or yeah, sneaker or whatever and it is. And so we're, so we're then looking to integrate that into some of the AR tech as well. So to me, <clears throat> retail store windows are the taxi industry sort of pre-Uber. They're, they're kind of comfortable with great how analogy. It, they're kind of comfortable with how it works and they're just spending a certain amount but I'll probably get vilified for this but it's true and I the issue is, is that you have all this passing traffic and you're paying a fortune for that real, real estate space and then you're having these super static uh, environments in front yet if you go online to any brand it will be the most dynamic looking brand you've ever seen in your life as yeah. people you know jumping off cars and surfing and running yeah. through beaches etc and then you get there and there's the, there's the mannequin wearing a jacket. Yeah. And to me, it's like, why are we not? This is one you already own, so why not use more of it? Yeah. So let, let's go back to the beginning. Yes. So you, you finished your comprehensive school education. Um, you went and studied art history. Is that art history? Yeah, 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 yeah critical art history. Um, in Brighton. In Brighton. Oh, Brighton's great. It is, that's part of the problem. Because <laughs> you did no work. You had a lot of fun. You're not going to be the only person who went to university in Brighton, graduated with no, a degree in drinking no. and having fun. Exactly, yeah. So you finish your art history degree in yes. Brighton. Yes. Then what happens? I, I began, strangely enough, I was actually quite motivated to work. Um, my, my family have all, lots of my family have owned businesses and that that seemed quite natural. I remember having a massive row with my uncle when I was sort of 18, 19 about how I was going to own a company in five years time and he said you've got no idea what you're talking about. <clears throat> so I actually started working with uh, a company called BritArt.com which was the first online art gallery in the UK. Okay. Uh, VC Cash um, was very, very interesting model uh, which I, I arguably just super early. So I, I, I worked for free for them. For, so I commuted back and forth from college in my last year and I was already working for free for them. So by the time I left college, they, they gave me some kind of editorially sort of job writing text and uh, for the website and kind of explaining the artwork. And then I was there for a couple of years. Um, it was great fun, it was a good, good, good place to work out, but ultimately it was, I didn't have a skill set, that was probably I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to go work in, in, in kind of publishing in some way. And so I moved, I left Brittart and I managed to beg and borrow. And if it's ever at any point, there's a, there's a guy called Dan Crow who I will name check at this point because he, I badgered him for six months to get me an internship at Days of Confused in London. And eventually he just gave up and he went and spoke to, to Jefferson Hack and uh, whoever else he needed to speak to and said, look, this, this kid just won't leave me alone. Please give him a job. Wow. And they brought me in as a, as a junior, as an intern, working for free. 
So still working for free at this point. And just, yeah, the world's changed. I don't think you can do that you anymore. You can't do that anymore. It's, it, it, it is probably rightfully illegal. Yeah, we pay our interns. Yes, yeah, we do too. <laughs> it, it, it's just something that, it's of the, the time to to be able to walk into somewhere like Days of Confused and, and even just be around, yeah. you would have almost paid. I think we're going we're gonna to start sounding old if we go too far down this road, but you know, when I was a journalist, um, I did work experience at a newspaper yeah. for a summer. Yeah. So, you know, slave labour. You know, didn't get paid for it. Yeah. Then they offered me a job on a salary that's so low that I was less, you know, I couldn't pay it's off my loans. Worse than being broke. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. And I think the world has moved on, and I do wonder whether that's necessarily a good thing. Obviously, it's, it's social equality means that some people just couldn't afford to do internships otherwise. So then there's a good yeah, level of there. Yeah, absolutely. But for me, there was something... If you're working for someone for free, you really try hard. It's weird, you try harder than if they're paying you. You try harder, and you also, and it also, for them, it kind of vets, it vets out, you know, for days particularly, and this was, you know, it was years and years ago, but it it was, it vets out the people who don't really care about the place enough. Yeah. And and one thing I kind of massively respected from from that place is that, like, we are days confused, we make apologies to no one, and this is what we do. And if you want to be a part of it, be part of it. If you don't, you don't. And it taught me a tremendous amount about community about what great environments and work environments are like what toxic work environments are like yeah um but at the same time they knew they knew if they asked you to do something you were going to do it mm. if it was going to get coffee or if it was editing a text or if it was attending a meeting or doing whatever you were 100 percent willing to kind of show that you'd make it work somehow. yeah um so yeah so days really days was was the most single formative part of my entire career, from, like from scratch. Right. I was lucky enough to, yeah, I was lucky enough to to end up getting paid, to end up running the art pages for for the magazine. I ended up being part of editorial meetings with some of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. You know, to to get shouted at by Rankin is this kind of like a, it's an amazing accolade. To, you know, just you know that these people really achieved so much with so little mm. I mean they, they I don't know if they still do it but at the time in the masthead you, you had all the different staff members and at the bottom they thanked Lloyd's Bank for the loan wow. with, and I, they probably still do it because <laughs> they couldn't afford to compete yeah. so but yeah it, you know and you were like you know you Alexander McQueen kind of all of the kind of original models that were going through there so this kind of amazing brick culture so it was the Kmos yeah. era all of that all of the artists, you know, the Damien Hirst lot, they were, it was all through there. Um, and yeah, and then you would sit at a desk, I'll never forget sitting at a desk, and I heard there was, there was a girl behind me and she said, excuse me, can I, can I have a cigarette? And I went to pick up a packet of cigarettes from my desk, because you could still smoke in an office at that time, which was also insane. Yeah, we and are standing old now, but yeah, I, no, so I remember that those days. <laughs> and pick up a cigarette and turning around, it was Helena Christensen standing, kind of, you know, she was like just, you know, I absolutely adore her. And just, I froze. I swear to God, I wish she looked like a startled rabbit. It was just stuff like that you would never get yeah. in any other work environment, really. Fantastic place. So, how does that become a market leader in AR? That's a really good question, actually. We, as, as we probably established, I have no tech background at all. I have an art background. Um, and a, a, to a certain extent, journalism, a bit of marketing and advertising. I... I think, as I said earlier on, we, you know, in the, I moved to Budapest um, with my wife, and I ended up in Budapest with, with no job, with no potential career prospects. I'd given up working at Days to, you know, I would, I would do it again, just in case she's listening, I would do it again. Um, but 
it it kind of really focused you on, on thinking, okay, how am I going to build my way, you know, here? <clears throat> so all of all of my skill set, which was English language, it was useless. It was okay. No one's going to hire you as a writer. Mm. No one's going to hire you as an advertiser. So I began talking to someone about again with this mobile app development. This was pre iPhone, and we were kind of talking about the idea of you know building apps. There's going to be an app store, and it's going to be busy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and again, we were just miserable at it because I don't think we either we really kind of cared that much about it. But coming across that video from this Japanese. So what was the video of? It was Hero. It was like a. It was one of the like super original open source uh, AR sort of effective. It wasn't even an SDK. It was sort of code base, I think. And it was it was a Nokia phone or something. And you pointed it at this incredibly ugly marker, and it rendered like a, a you know 150 polygon box. Yeah. But this was 2009, 2010. It was just mind blowing. Yeah. And I remember sitting in a meeting in this. We had this tiny little office. And we were sitting in a meeting saying like. Okay, this is just way bigger than us. Like we, like we, we don't even comprehend it. So I think we may have been lucky to have found something that we can actually build a business around. And and, and sure enough, well, not sure enough. I mean, for the first two years, we proceeded to just just talk to people and be completely ignored. I mean, I went back to the art gallery that I used to work at and said, in 2010, why don't you visualise artwork on the wall before you sell it, so people can configure it to fit their furniture. And they looked. They just looked at us like we'd landed from Mars. Yeah. And, and now it's like. Well, now it's like <laughs> IKEA, yeah, it's like Amazon, Amazon. exactly. And it, but the problem is, you don't back yourself because you don't have enough experience. So, yeah. so the early days when you're talking to people, you you start to really question. Well, maybe they're right. Hmm. I, I went into meetings in whatever, let's say 2011, and people would stand. They would say, and I swear, and I don't remember who it was, but I swear this is true. We've done AR. That was it. I love, I love it. We've done AR. We've done but AR. We have that as a company. We'll talk to people. We're like, oh, we tried VR. It didn't really work for us. All right, okay. Well, what did you try? How did you measure it? What were you actually trying what to achieve? Measure, yeah. You know. And I think the problem is, is that, like, you know, in, a, in any early stage tech, as I've learned, you are, you are required to kick it out of the park. So it's not like people will come to you and say, I want you to build us a better website. They, they look at you and think, well, if this is magic, then the result has to be magic times a thousand. Yeah. And if it's not magic times a thousand, which it won't be, let's be honest, that in early stage tech, lots of things don't appear necessarily in the way they are. You, you're like, well, yeah, as you say, what were you, what were you measuring? Yeah. Was it magic times 250? Was that enough? Or? Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact quote now, but, and I'm going to make me sound old again, but there's a, there's a, I think there's a famous Henry Ford quote or the one about Henry Ford, which is yeah. if Henry Ford hadn't come along, we'd just have faster horses. Yeah. Um, you know, Absolutely. it's that, it's that yeah, yeah, principle. Yeah. That's in uh, in our 11 commandments. One of them is don't build faster horses. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's absolutely bang on. I, there are certain people that are very, very good at building incremental steps in certain things. And, and I hats off to those people. And, and they, they have, you know, let's say, for example, televisions. And there's this kind of roadmap of 15 years, yeah. and they're just increasing. And they're better now than they were. Obviously. And they're better now than they were. So in that sense, it's a complete success. But you don't you don't get that privilege at that kind of stage, because the technology is in its absolute infancy. The re, the principle is completely sound, but the 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 result is often less than. But it's interesting because we've we've 
talk many times and I think one of the things you said is that you should look back on your own company's products from 12 months ago and think they're not very good and I'm I'm when we publish this podcast I'm going to put the picture of me with Sean the Alien up because yeah. we're talking about Sean the Alien <coughs> that's how I first met your company and I'm going to look at that picture and it's going to look pretty horrible yeah and you're going to look at it and be slightly embarrassed well not embarrassed but no, no, you know but that was your yeah. five-year-old version of it and and what yeah. you can do now where detective pikachu comes out the floor and stands yeah. next to you yeah. is a bit of an advance on sure the is alien it? no offense to sure the alien but it's yeah it, it's kind of you know to a certain extent it's sort of horses for courses as well you like each each part of the things that we do is at different stages of the cycle and and you can often adapt how that how people interpret that from often how you build content and how you how the content is displayed at the end <clears throat> so sean is live really live render content in in any sense so that's kind of game style content up until six seven years ago it wasn't a democratized thing it was you went out and you bought a rendering engine and that rendering engine would cost you two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then unity arrived and just transformed it suddenly yeah. it was like you can render anything you want it won't be fantastic but you can render anything you want and make a little game and it's going to cost you I don't know I think it was even free for a long time but you know now I think it's like a thousand dollars a seat and so Sean was a product really of not he's a product of the fact that a couple of pieces of technology just were very very early on and then sometimes you know we broadcast it or we will we will either live render it or pre-render it depending on what we want to do but ultimately, you know, it's the same with mobile. It's like you, mobile is super exciting, but ultimately, <clears throat> if you were doing it on iPhone 1, it was like a joke. I mean, yeah. you know, you used to walk into a meeting and present a, a demo to someone, and you would have to place the marker on the table to avoid any direct light glare from the lights that were in the meeting room. Yeah. And, and you would have to cheat. You know, you had to cheat. And, but that was where it was at. And that's why you, you didn't see as much up until the point where maybe, I don't know, iPhone 3, 4, Unity was kind of prevalent at that point, and the content stepped it up a little So obviously, <clears throat> your products are much better now than they were then, but also the accessibility to AR has completely changed. So obviously some of it, the sort of, the general popularity of it, so the whole Pokemon Go thing, yeah. is the example still so many people use as when, yeah. they, when they were using AR before that like heads up displays and stuff but they might not have realised but Pokemon Go seems to be the one that everyone refers to as the thing that made them realise what AR is yeah. but you know AR kit now on phones yeah. and you know you can be a dinosaur on a yeah. Apple text yeah. thing now like it's all moved on so quickly so how do you make sure uh, yeah, do your products remain attractive when so much is free and easy and accessible I think, I think for us, we, we've been, <clears throat> we're, a, we're a B2B business to start with. So we're not subject to the same rules that, that say, B2C companies are subject to. I don't envy anyone really running a B2C company, particularly in North America. But it, as a B2B business, you're, you're looking, you, we, we talked about this before, like, you have to understand where the customers are. And the customers, Pokemon Go was amazing because it was an amazing game and it had one of the most famous IP characters in the world. The AR module was tapped on the side. That was all the press talked about. But yeah. the truth was is that after two months of playing it, most people switched that off. You could turn it off yeah. and you could just play the game. Yeah. So it was a sound game made with great IP marketed well. That's why it was a success. So 
to, to us, it's, you know, we've always been really, really careful about listening to what people actually want, yeah. not what the press says they're about to have. Yeah. And so wearable glass is arguably one of the most exciting things now. You know, the conversation right now is exciting, and in the next five years, it's going to be fascinating. But the truth is, at this point in time, the world is not, is not there yet. No. And, and so for us, it's kind of been about listening and it's been about adapting and it's been about growing whatever the market tells us in terms of where they want to be, not in the next five years, but in the next, you know, in the next six months, really. Um, and love it or hate it, the world's nowhere near as far on as we all pretend we are. Yeah. You know, which, which, is, which is great because it, it, it means that when you're young, you, you think you've got to do everything yesterday, otherwise you're going to get beaten. Yeah. But I've kind of, I've actually kind of, I'm much better now at coming to the conclusion that there's many years ahead yet. Yeah. Okay, this is not, it's, it's not going to end next year. <laughs> and also there's, there's a sort of tech company bubble that we all exist in where, you know, our, our, the clever people in our companies who actually can build this stuff, uh, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll build something and they'll look at it and go, well, that's quite clever, but, you know, we could make it clever. And then you show it to a normal person. So you know we do we do AR business cards yeah. where you know you can appear on the yeah, table yeah. Yeah. and you know <laughs> showed it to my parents and they're like I don't understand how are you on my table well, that's the closest thing to witchcraft they've probably yeah. seen no it's <laughs> extraordinary and you know there are ways of making it better and so on technically but actually the man in the street that's an amazing thing yeah so if, um, you, if you're giving them something that adds kind of real it, the, you know you've got to see the novelty aspect and then you've got the secondary layer which is the real layer that we all want to focus on which is which is building kind of useful things, yeah. you know, and the things that advance things and make things go, go faster and, and, and better. But yeah, it, most people, they, you know, the industry really is at, we, we built the Guinness Book of Records mobile AR in 2013 yeah. using the first issue of Euphoria. And I, that's one of the few jobs I can still look back on six years later, and that's still good. I, I genuinely yeah, believe yeah. it's still good. And in 2013, markerless, like we were pushing the absolute envelope on rendering, and 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 I, I I will still pull that out if I have to talk to someone and we talk about mobile. Life, sometimes I'll just pull that book out, and that's six years old. Mm. So it's it's the, the certainly in terms of the in, in terms of mobile, there's there's so many different strands right now that you don't necessarily know which one's going to win. I think yeah. I think web AR ultimately. Killing the app is going to be great, but then ultimately, if Apple and Google just bake it into their phones, then they're going to own it. Yeah. So QR codes obviously are automatically read now. Yeah. And so that's the next thing. If our markers we're building can be automatically read without need for app, <coughs> that can change everything. Well, Google has the Google has the image library. Hmm. So they're, they're so we've got phones, we've got software, we've got instant search and we've got every image basically we've got the whole world mapped and we've got every image known to in existence effectively so it, it doesn't it's not that, then that difficult you start to draw a few lines together and think well hold on a minute once that's baked into the browser and once that browser goes on glass then they will augment I mean the Google Maps thing is kind of funny right now on glass but they'll augment everything mm. um, and so I'm not convinced that a company of 15 people, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people can compete with that level of preparation. These no. guys, they've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah. You know. 
But what you're doing is different. <coughs> you know, they may well build that world. So in the way that you know you can do clever experiences now than you could on iPhone one. Yeah. So when somebody's built a wearable that works, because you're not going to build one, and when no. they built the, the world that's pre-mapped. Yeah. It's what you do with that technology on top, which will be your differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as, as long as you're not in a point where where it's become so commoditized that ultimately it's a, it's a charge by an hour job, then effectively there's room for people to play. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not huge. I'm not. Never been the biggest fan of having you know the largest technology company on the planet as a main competitor. So I, I kind of. <laughs> I, kind of I, I, like, I prefer to. Um, I prefer to fish in in, in areas that that not everyone is jumping into because ultimately that's a place where you can thrive and you can probably do better work as a result um, because you have a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Uh, it does make us a little bit more unconventional. It does make us a little bit weird. But it, it, it's kind of part of the company's ethos to, to be like that. We've, we've always been like that. Yeah. So conscious of time. So my last question is always the same. I always do this sort of final question, which is if there was one technological advancement that would change everything about your industry. Although I feel like you might have already answered it. If it's is it wearables? I yeah, I mean we're stuck we're stuck in a kind of relatively conventional computational advanced loop. So we know these things are gonna is it I'm, I'm gonna I'll dive it very, very quickly. It's a brilliant story of a um, a content director that worked with us for a couple of years and we were talking about Magic Leap, and we were talking about Glass, etc. And apparently, at that time, Magic Leap were about to release the the Hololens killer, or the or the whatever it was going to be. <clears throat> and he said, "Yeah, the problem is, is that the, the like that size GPUs, so the, the graphics processors of the computers, they're they're at uh, like on that size, they're they're like at fourteen hundred series or whatever it was. So unless they've just reinvented the law of computational advances then it's going to be the same and it's it's a really crushing way to describe the the problem that we all face that ultimately Mm. that graphics processor is going to have to work it's going to be a hundred times faster and miniaturized by a hundred times to provide the kind of power that people were expecting from that launch yeah and so it's just it was (laughs) he kind of stood there and put his hands in there it's science isn't it and it, and it is actually, but it, but in terms of the in terms of the total advance, the the one that will really change it will be will be wearable. It will be uh, it will be faster comms. So you know we're on five G now. So whatever it is, the six G, um, it will be the speed of that that allows that thing to be able to draw down data and stuff and augment it and understand its environment fast enough. Uh, that that will be the one. I don't know who it will be though. I, I like Facebook have just partnered with Ray Bans. I noticed Snapchat are kind of playing around. Uh, Apple, I think, are. Uh, Microsoft certainly are. So someone, someone, or at least two, three of them will finally nail it where people want to wear it. And once they want to wear it, then you've, I, in my experience, I think you've then got at least another two, three, four years before it becomes pervasive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be the one. Yeah. Very good. Alex from Indy, thank you very much for your time and your insight. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Reality Show. If you enjoyed listening, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find us on social media at Reality Show Pod. Thank you.